This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. I want to tell you about a great new podcast called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you'll love it. The latest episode features interviews with the visionaries who are creating systems that bring our work, and more importantly, our workforce, into the 21st century. Because although we're plugged in at home, when it comes to the workforce, we're lagging behind. Listen to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Well, folks, I've had the great Carl Reiner on the show a couple of times now, most recently in June, so it was only a matter of time before I had his son, the talented director, actor, and writer Rob Reiner on the podcast. Rob Reiner certainly needs no introduction. Coming from an entertainment family, Reiner's earliest television credits go back as far as The Andy Griffith Show, Gomer Pyle, The Beverly Hillbillies, and The Partridge Family. But his best-known role remains his nine-season run on All in the Family as Michael, or Meathead as Archie Bunker used to call him. He's also had many memorable roles on the big screen, including This is Spinal Tap, Throw Mama from the Train, Postcards from the Edge, Sleepless in Seattle, Bullets Over Broadway, The First Wives Club, Primary Colors, Ed TV, The Muse, The Majestic, The Wolf of Wall Street, and most recently in the Adam Sandler film Sandy Wexler. He's directed no less than 20 movies, including some of the most beloved films of the past three decades, like This is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, North, The American President, Ghosts of Mississippi, The Story of Us, Rumor Has It, and The Bucket List. Reiner is also no stranger to the world of politics. He was the co-founder of the American Foundation for Equal Rights, which initiated the court challenge against Prop 8, which banned same-sex marriage in California. In 1998, Reiner chaired the campaign to pass Prop 10, the California Children and Families Initiative, which created First Five California, a program of early childhood development services. Reiner is a member of the Social Responsibility Task Force, an organization advocating moderation where social issues and the entertainment industry meet. He's also active in environmental issues, and he successfully led the effort to establish California's Amundsen Ranch as a state park and wildlife refuge rather than a commercial real estate development. Reiner came close to running against California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in 2006, and he's campaigned and endorsed Democratic presidential candidates including Al Gore, Howard Dean, and Hillary Clinton. Now Rob Reiner is melding his politics with his art in his newest film, LBJ, which stars Woody Harrelson as President Lyndon Johnson. And today, we'll talk about how Reiner's view of LBJ has evolved since he was a young man of draft age during the Vietnam War. We'll talk about what drove Johnson to become a champion for civil rights. We'll recall a few of the more memorable LBJ anecdotes and speculate on how the famously politically incorrect president might have fared in the age of iPhones and social media. He'll weigh in on the Trump-Russia investigation, the failed health care bill, and the divisiveness of today's political climate. Plus, he'll talk about growing up in show business, the time he got in trouble for grabbing Mary Tyler's ass on the set of his dad's show, his audition for All in the Family, and whether or not he could get used to the words President Meathead. Coming up with Rob Reiner in just a moment. 
My guest today has been nominated for nine Golden Globes, three Directors Guild Awards, an Academy Award, and five Emmys, two of which he won, along with the People's Choice Award. He's well known on screen as Archie Bunker's bleeding heart son-in-law, Michael Meathead Stivic in All in the Family. And I can see that you're cringing as I bring that up. No, no. <laughs> Do you get tired I, I of wasn't, that? I wasn't, Meathead? Cring- I wasn't cringing at that so much. I was cringing at the fact that I've been nominated for all these things and I hardly win anything. <laughs> I've only won two things. So that was the thing that was most upsetting. No, the meathead thing is fine. I mean, you're only the third person to call me that today. Yeah, sure. (laughs) So you should feel honored. Well, aside from all in the family, you had memorable roles in Throw Mama from the Train, Sleepless in Seattle, Bullets Over Broadway, The First Wives Club, Primary Colors, New Girl, and The Wolf of Wall Street. My guest's body of work as a director has included such a diverse range of hits as This Is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, North, The American President, Ghosts of Mississippi, Rumor Has It, The Bucket List, and his newest film, LBJ. Oh, and on occasion, he has a political opinion or two. Rob Reiner, thanks for coming on the podcast. thanks for having me. You know, you list all that stuff, and now I'm exhausted. (laughs) Well, you know, you must not have your dad's genes, because I had him on, I guess, about a month ago for the second time, and my God. 95, I, 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 and I he actually, keeps going. I, yeah, he's 95. I actually do have his genes, and unfortunately, uh, they don't fit. They don't fit. <laughs> I'm a lot bigger than he is, so I'll have to lose some weight if I want to really have his genes. Well, I'm amazed by That's your maybe dad. the worst joke I've ever made in my yeah. life. <laughs> Although, you know, you stick with me a while, and it, it yeah. could get worse. <laughs> Do you think you'll have his stamina at that oh, age? Oh, God. You know, I, I can't imagine. I mean, the guy's 95 years old. He gets up every day. It's like he say, makes the joke. You know, I read the obits, and if I'm not in it, I eat <laughs> breakfast. And so, and he writes. He writes every single day. He's written like yeah. five books in the last five years. And uh, no, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, having the kind of uh, stamina. I Listen, I remember when I was little. And he was on the show of shows, Sid Caesar show. He was yeah. like a, you know, he was already well known at that point. And we'd be walking down the street in New York City, and I was always having to run to keep up with him. <laughs> really? You know, yeah, he his just his pace was so fast. I mean, I would have to sprint. So it's it's the same. You know, I'd be lucky to make it that far. Well, he told me that you and Albert Brooks were childhood best friends. And I guess you guys used to do these little comedy routines for the family, ironically, as the team of Reiner and Brooks. (laughs) Well, we we actually, it was Albert who used to do the routine. I mean, yes, here's what's funny. Uh, You know, know, uh, my father's best friend is Mel Brooks. And Mm -hmm. as a kid growing up, my best friend was Albert Brooks. And now my son, Nick Reiner, his best friend is is Joey Brooks, who is Jim Brooks's son. So you got three generations of Reiners and Brooks's. Now, are you still close with Albert? Yeah, I still yeah. see Albert. Yeah, I still see him once in a while. We mm-hmm. we talk. We have dinner once in a while. Yeah, he's he's literally the funniest man I know. Really? Yeah. I mean, Mel too. Yeah. Mel too. I would say both of those the, both those Brookses, <laughs> and neither of them is that their real name. I mean, uh, all three Brookses actually: Jim, Albert, and oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, well, Mel yeah, is uh, Mel was Melvin Mel Kaminsky. Mel, right? Mel Kaminsky. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jim Brooks is uh, Jim uh, Bernstein, I think, yeah. and uh, Albert is uh, Albert Einstein. I am right. not kidding. 
That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> At some point, I think I heard Mel's son, Max, Max, said that your dad and his dad have this routine where Mel comes over to your dad's house every, every night, night, every night, and basically they yell at each other and have dinner till yeah, three in the yeah. morning. They, they 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 do that, and they watch uh, some television show, and they'll have something to eat, and uh, Mel will fall asleep on the couch a lot of the time, and uh, you know it's nice that they have each other. Well, I wonder, coming from such a great showbiz family, when you decided to go into entertainment. Did you ever try to work the nepotism angle or did dad have advice for you? No, or? no, the nepotism thing doesn't, you know, you know, it's there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, listen, the name is there. The mm-hmm. nepotism part, I, he never, we never did any of that stuff. I mean, he never tried to help out in, in that way, but I think that was good. I mean, I had to cut my own teeth and make mm-hmm. my own way. Uh, but I definitely was aware of how, you know, the shadow and all of that. And mm-hmm. they tell the story about when I was eight years old, I, I went up to my mother and I said, I want to change my name. And she right. told my dad, my dad was all upset. He was worried, you know, that how is this, this poor kid feels the burden of having to live up to, you know, the name and all this. And so he came to me, he says, well, I hear you want to change your name. What do you want to change it to? And I said, Carl. <laughs> so, you know, I thought that I could get right, right there. I didn't have to. Yeah. That's great. Well, was he pretty encouraging or did he try to talk you out of it? No, he wasn't encouraging or discouraging. Mm -hmm. He basically just let me go my own way and, uh, you know, I found my own way. But I was always interested. I mean, he let me, when I was a teenager, he let me come down to the set to watch the Van Dyke show during the day. I mean, when I was off for school in in the summers Mm -hmm. and I spent every single day on on the set of the Dick Van Dyke show. So I was curious about it. I wanted to know about it. Yeah, you apparently you were curious about a lot of things because I heard this story that when you were a kid on the set, you grabbed Mary Tyler Moore's ass. And yes, got I did. In some trouble. Huh? I did. I did. I was <laughs> I was 14 years old, and I'm not telling tales out of school because she talks about it in her book, and she actually mentioned it on the on the Letterman show. So she was a great lady. And uh, here's here's an interesting thing because I did I was you know she was so beautiful and I was 14. She was like 25 years old. She wore these capri pants and. My hormones were going crazy. I don't know. You know, I grabbed her. My dad called me into She told on me, you know, and my dad <laughs> called me in the office and said, did you grab Mary Tellmore by the ass? I said, yeah, I did. I did. And he said, well, he had a smile on his face, actually, when he said, he said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> okay, so here's the, the, the flash forward on this. And this is a, you'd have to know the show because uh, she would always get crying as you go, oh, Rob, right. you know, like that. Oh, Rob. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. And so years later, they were doing a, re- a reunion show, the Van Dyke show. And I came down to visit. Now I had been successful in the family. I had made movies and stuff like that. And they had just finished a scene where they were in a, uh, she was in an evening gown. Dick was in a tuxedo. They finished the scene. And I told the guy, just keep rolling the camera. So I walked on and I stopped her. You know, I said, Mary, I just want to say I'm really sorry for what I did back then. I, 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 I didn't know what you. came over me. I just, I'm so sorry. I just feel bad. And she says, it's okay. I said, listen, you were so beautiful. I said, listen, I, you know, if I wouldn't get arrested for sexual harassment, I mean, <laughs> even now you're so gorgeous. I would, she sticks her tush out right at me and I grab her and she goes, oh, Rob. Like that. It was like a 30 a, a year setup yeah. to a great punch. <laughs> well, I wonder, how did you get the part on All in the Family? Well, that, to go way back. Th- that, uh, is interesting because they they did two pilots mm-hmm. at ABC, and they had two different sets of Mike and Gloria's. They were two uh, different sets of actors, and I actually auditioned for one of the times at ABC. I didn't get the part, and then they went to CBS, 
And I came back again. And at this point, I had, I think I had gotten a little better. And I was, and then I auditioned again. And that I got at that time. You started out as an actor. When did you start to think that you might want to also kind of follow your dad's footsteps into directing? Well, you, you know, I, I, I did start as an actor, but not really. I started mm-hmm. as an actor and a director. I was 19 years old and I started my own improv group <laughs> with some friends at UCLA. And I was directing the the group as well and I had directed some theater in in LA when I was 19 I did a production of No Exit and Rick, Rick Dreyfus was the star of that and you know so I, I I had done things as a director even when I was young and 19. Well your body of work as a filmmaker as I already mentioned is so diverse ranging from Spinal Tap to Princess Bride to Misery A Few Good Men and now LBJ is it a matter of you want to challenge yourself as a director by experimenting in so many different genres, or is there a consistent element that attracts you to each film? I, I don't. I don't really think about it in terms of challenging myself from a genre standpoint. Mm-hmm. I'll challenge myself in terms of the story I want to tell, but I usually have to have some kind of connection to it or some feeling about why to tell that story, whether it's a a personal one, uh, you know, an emotional connection or something that I've been thinking about uh, over a period of time, like LBJ. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is a this is a a person who, you know, a president who loomed very large in my life. Uh, I was of draft age during the Vietnam War. So he was like my enemy. I hated him because he could send me to my death to a war that I didn't, you know, I wasn't uh, supportive of and thought it was immoral and illegal. And over the years, as I have gotten older and spent some time in politics and in government and working on public policy, I started to have a greater understanding of what he, what his accomplishments meant and how difficult uh, uh, what he was able to do and how, how, how amazing his accomplishments were. And so I, it, it made me think, okay, I will, I will wrestle with this, you know, because I had a, an emotional connection to it because of the Vietnam War, but then I also had this other experiential connection mm-hmm. uh, over a period of time. So that's what drew me to that. But er- every film is different, you know, and what, what draws me to it. There used to be, there has to be some element of connection that I make to it. You probably came of voting age and of draft age probably toward the end of his presidency, right? If well, I have my math right Well, here. Uh, 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 he actually, uh, it was 1968, uh, he didn't run. He stayed president right. through 68, okay, right, and right. he didn't run. And that was the first year I could vote because mm-hmm. I was uh, I was born in in forty seven, so I was twenty one then. But uh, I was of draft age during the Vietnam, you know, during yeah. you know sixty four, five, six, you know, when he won when he first won the presidency after uh, Kennedy was assassinated. I was in college, and you know, and and I was worried after if I dropped out or what would happen, and I'd get you know, get drafted because there was a draft then. Yeah. And it was a huge anti-war movement. Uh, You always say, well, why aren't uh, kids as energized or engaged? Well, you'll get engaged if you think your life is on the line, you know? (laughs) And that's why you're seeing so much uh, uh, activity for for the health care bill and Mm -hmm. why they, when they took it away, they wanted to take it away uh, because people's lives were going to be affected. You're going to lose your health care coverage. I mean, that that's that's the yeah. thing that gets you motivated. So it was yeah. your life's Fear. on the line. Fear, yeah. absolutely. Fear motivates. Yeah. 
Well, you and LBJ certainly are two different kinds of Democrats. I mean, you're a liberal progressive from Hollywood. He was, I guess, what we would call a blue dog Democrat from Texas. Looking back now, do you find much common cause with Lyndon Johnson? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lyndon Johnson uh, came into the United States Congress when FDR was still president. And he idolized FDR. He voted for basically for everything FDR put forward. And the legislation that Lyndon Johnson passed, I mean, when you look at it, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, the, the, the litany is, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what he was, and those are all things that I uh, support. So, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, legislatively, I was, you know, totally in sync with him. What I didn't agree with him was the Vietnam War. You mentioned the Civil Rights Bill, and certainly LBJ is kind of a complex character because on the one hand, here's a guy who would throw around the N-word when he was talking with his Southern colleagues in the Senate, and yet he risked all the political capital that he had to push through certainly the most important civil rights legislation of the 20th century. What do you think drove him to take up this cause? I think that at at his core, he was not a racist. Mm -hmm. He was from the South, and he was raised in that atmosphere, but he was also raised in the West uh, Texas Hill Country. Mm -hmm. And and he knew poverty. He was of poverty. He came from a very you know, modest background, and he understood poverty. So he was never ideologically a racist, but he also knew what it took to get elected and to get legislation passed. So he did whatever he did. And like you said, he would say the N-word when he was around certain people, and when he wasn't, he'd try to say, you know, he actually, we have a scene in the movie where he says, I'm the only one that can speak Southern and Kennedy, you know? He, he, he viewed himself as somebody who could, you know, wrangle people and put people together. Yeah. And uh, he was a master of, uh, at, at legislating. Yeah, he was the consummate horse trader, the master of the backroom deal and so forth. Uh, yes, politi- but you know, but you know, you have to want to get that thing done. Right. It's not a, just a right. matter of effectuating legislation. You mm-hmm. have to have in your core, at some in some place, to say, I, I, I want to get this done. This is something I think is important for the country. And then you you take those skills that you have, those yeah. those abilities to wrangle and and horse trade. But you don't do it based on nothing. It has to mm-hmm. be based on and and he knew full well that he was going to lose the South to the that the Democrats would lose the South for as he thought a generation. It's Which now over fifty years. Yeah. It's more than more a generation. Than that, yeah. yeah, way more. Mm-hmm. Over fifty years, he's still, uh, you know, it's still uh, uh, gone to the Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, as someone who's very much a Washington insider, master of the backroom deal, I wonder how this film will be received by the public, which seems to be super anti-establishment, anti-Washington these days. You know, one has to think that a guy like that would probably have been tarred and feathered rather than reelected these days. I don't know about that. I think what you're starting to see with the demise of the health care bill, you're starting to see the beginnings of reconnecting uh, uh, regular order. Mm-hmm. When you saw John McCain take the floor of the Senate and he voted uh, to to, right. to proceed with the, uh, you know, for, for a motion to proceed, but then he voted against yeah. the health care because he said, this is not regular order. This mm-hmm. is not about, you know, bringing both sides together and figuring out how to work together. And you're now seeing small pockets of people that are starting to recognize that. 
This is a very interesting film to look at with uh, Trump in the White House. I made it over a year ago, and when we first started screening it, it, would, it, it was different. You know, the film is exactly the same film, but recently seeing it after Trump has become president and watching it through that, mm -hmm. through that lens, it's a different film. People see what a president really is. Yeah. This is a real president, not one who plays one on television. He is a real president and how real presidents do things. And I think people will be, it'll be eye-opening for them. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Rob Reiner when we come back in just a moment. Kick-Ass News is brought to you by Michael Moore's world premiere Broadway show, The Terms of My Surrender. The Oscar-winning filmmaker behind Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit 9-11 invites you on a whirlwind tour through the depraved new world we've found ourselves in since Election Day 2016. Directed by Tony Award winner Michael Mayer, The Terms of My Surrender is a hysterical, heartfelt, and subversive piece of theater that'll help make sense of how the hell we got here and how we can get out. Featuring razor-sharp political insights, up-to-the-minute translations of each day's fresh insanity, and any number of nightly surprises, this outrageous live event is as unpredictable as our current commander-in-chief. Everyone's welcome, Democrats, Republicans, Canadians, and anyone else who believes in free expression for all. So don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime experience with one of American politics' most incisive and hilarious voices. After all, who better to answer the burning questions of the Trumpian era than the man who saw it all coming and tried to warn us? Michael Moore's The Terms of My Surrender, on Broadway for a strictly limited engagement. Visit michaelmoreonbroadway.com for more info. And now, back to the show. I mean, here we are six months into the Trump presidency, and really the only silver lining seems to be that he's basically had the most impotent administration in modern memory. I mean, Republicans have control of essentially the entire government, and yet they can't seem to turn a single campaign promise of his into actual legislation. The substance of that policy aside, maybe there's something to be said for having an old-fashioned political horse trader who can actually make things happen again. Well, well, that's part of it. But it also, you have to understand, you're dealing with a man who has absolutely no uh, core beliefs and mm -hmm. has absolutely no ideology. His only core belief is himself. And so there is no passion about uh, the things he wants to do. It's only about what is expedient for him. I would argue that political orthodoxy for Republicans is global trade policy. Right. And so that's not something that Republicans are keen on uh, ripping up NAFTA or ripping right. up traditional uh, Republicans. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and many of them have fled away from Trump, like yeah, Bill Crystal. Yeah. Well, like many, many of the yeah. thoughtful Republicans, they don't, you know, border security is important, but they don't want that wall. That yeah. wall is not something they want. And so. Yes, they want to repeal and replace Obamacare. They've been saying that for seven years. But I think a lot of that comes from uh, the the extreme right of the party and some of these Tea Party people who mm -hmm. don't really understand about how people live in America. Most of the people that they are saying they're representing 
are dying to have Medicaid. They love Medicaid. They love Obamacare because it expands Medicaid. Mm -hmm. They're not against that. These people are just connecting to what they think is a, a, a small section of their base that's holding them hostage. And so none of the things that Trump is in favor of are they for. The yeah. perfect example is he's soft on Russia. Yeah. He, why is he soft on Russia? Well, we pretty much know why. But that's the the important thing to know is the Senate, either 97 or 98 to 2, passed uh, a bill saying we're going to be strong on Russia. We're going to be strong on, 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 on uh, uh, North Korea and Iran. The House overwhelmingly, with only three votes against, passed the same thing. Mm -hmm. So they're not in favor of what Trump wants, which is to lift sanctions on Russia. There's nothing that he is putting forward except for maybe deregulation. They like the idea of deregulation. Well, yeah, and it's strange to see that the public, at least 50% of the country, seems to be completely unfazed by this Russia scandal. I mean, you know, if you think back to LBJ during the Cold War, the very idea that anyone in his White House would have had any kind of collusion with the Soviets or that they would have interfered in a U.S. election. Well, you know I why? Mean, Here's why. Because in the Cold War, and this is an ad that only ran one time when LBJ ran against uh, Goldwater. Uh, Goldwater, they had a, a, a bomb, an atom mm -hmm. bomb blowing up. And they said, is this the man you want to entrust, meaning Goldwater, with his finger on the button? That was an enormous, powerful ad mm -hmm. that basically, in very clear terms, showed the public what we were dealing with. What we're dealing with now is way, way more destructive than dropping an atom bomb. If the Russians had dropped an atom bomb on New York City, just like when those planes went into the World Trade Center, everybody united. People have a hard time understanding that what Russia was able to do was invade our democracy mm -hmm. and that our way of life, which is something they're playing a long game at, our way of life right. is in danger right now. And if people understood that, they'd be just as up in arms mm -hmm. about, about what happened during the Cold War. But we know, based on what cyber warfare can do, it's way more powerful than dropping an atom yeah. bomb. We're talking about the ability to shut down electrical grids, to stop the water supplies, to uh, uh, literally weaponize it so mm -hmm. that you can blow stuff up. I mean, we did it with the Israelis in Stuxnet. Yeah. We blew up centrifuges in Iran. So it can be done. Yeah. People have to understand that that's what's involved here and that we are a 241-year-old democracy. We're the beacon to the world. And great societies last anywhere from 250 to 300 years. So we are on a cusp right now. And whether or not we are deciding we're going to uphold the principles of democracy and stand for those uh, institutions which support democracy, like the freedom of the press and equal branches of government, these are the things that we have to fight for now. And people have to understand that that's, that's what's at stake here. Yeah, and what you said a moment ago about cyber war and what the end game really is with Russia is very similar to what I heard about a week ago when I had a conversation with a cybersecurity expert. He said, it's way worse than we even realize. Yes. It's not just about influencing election. It's about sowing seeds of doubt in the right. process and then convincing our government that we're so unsafe and so vulnerable to cyber attack 
that we will then get on board with rolling back all kinds of internet freedoms, not just here, but around the world, thus allowing China and Russia to get well, what they want well, and be able to roll back freedoms on their own people. Th- that That's exactly right. And there's another aspect of it as well, which is once you start sowing the seeds of doubt in the democracy, you're saying, you know, that way of life isn't the one that works. Mm-hmm. We have been trying to sell this idea of inclusiveness, of you know, letting people have freedom of press, of religion, of all of those things that we hold dear. If If they can get a wedge in, which they've already done, mm-hmm. to make us doubt whether or not our way of life is the better way of life, then you have the European Union, you have uh, NATO dissolve, you have all of those things that have we have put into place to protect our way of life start to crumble. And that's where we are right now, and that's why we have to fight hard against this. Yeah. Well, going back to LBJ, and one of my favorite aspects of your film is that you don't cheat the viewer out of the bawdier and more entertaining LBJ anecdotes, like conducting meetings from the toilet or yeah. the famous call where he, uh, there's a yeah. famous recording of him calling, I think, the Hager Slack well, company. Yeah, trying to buy some slacks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he wants a little extra room, uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, where, the where, crotch, where, yeah. where my, my nuts hang down, you know, and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, that those yeah. are all taken from... Uh, yeah, you know, from from uh, recordings that we yeah. Had, yeah. I mean, do you think that a man like LBJ would have fared very well today when nothing is off the record anymore and everyone who's around you 24-7 has an iPhone and a social media account? Well, I mean, it would have been difficult, more difficult. But, I mean, people are accepting that now. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're okay with Anthony Scaramucci saying what he said. Or, you know, you got a guy, you got a president of the United States now who said it's okay to grab a woman's pussy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> if that's okay, then then anything's okay. <laughs> you know, say whatever you want. <laughs> I know from talking to your dad, and particularly from his tweets, that he can't stand the president. Uh, I kind of tend to think that, given the choice between Hitler and Trump, he'd probably want to take a second look at Hitler. I don't know about that. What do you you think bothers you the most or just completely drives you crazy about Donald Trump? The thing that bothers me most is that we have somebody who is completely uh, incapable and inept as a president who's uh, got mental health issues, uh, who is greedy and uh, only cares about himself and not about the country. Uh, so that and it has no business being president and uh, the fact that he's diminished our our standing in the world Um, there's almost nothing and I make the joke of the only people the only jobs that he's provided is for comics I mean he's made it easier for comics but other than that uh, I don't think there's one thing you can recommend about him Mm -hmm. Uh, and and even the people who support him uh, if they actually looked at what he was trying to do, uh, they'd see they'd be very angry to know that he was trying to take their health care away mm-hmm. because the people that are uh, disproportionately affected are people in those red states and red districts. Right. Right. Yeah. All those people who voted for him in West Virginia and yeah. coal country. Yeah. yeah. They'd yeah, like no, to keep they're their basically he's basically against you know, helping them and, you know, for him to lie and say, I'm going to bring manufacturing mm-hmm. jobs back or bring the coal coal uh, coal mining jobs back it, it's not going to happen it, it won't happen and uh, so he's not only that, he's a liar he's self-aggrandizer he only cares about himself and it's just very sad that we've gotten to this point in America where yeah. a person who a person like that can become the president 
Well, you've always been fairly politically active and vocal about your beliefs, involved and engaged civically. But your movies up till now, with the exception of The American President, have for the most part been apolitical. Well, that's now, not true, really. No, I mean, you don't think so? Okay. No, no, because I also did uh, uh, Ghosts of Mississippi. Right. And I did uh, uh, A Few Good Men. And, and right. now I've done... You Which know, had a political Lyndon, angle, yeah, sure. Yeah, Lyndon Johnson. Sure. And now uh, okay. uh, Shock and Awe is a film I just finished. Right. I was just going to mention that yeah. one, too, which uh, I think it covers the journalists in the Iraq War. Well, it's it's the run-up to the Iraq War. Right. It's the four journalists from the Knight Ritter News Service who got everything right mm -hmm. and were completely ignored. Mm -hmm. So then you don't feel that maybe you're getting a little bit more comfortable with melding your politics and your art. You feel you know, that you've you know always what, You know what I'm that, getting huh? more comfortable with? Because I know that when I make a movie like... Uh, shock and awe or you know LBJ whatever the movie I'm making that has a political uh, overtone to it uh, people will hate me for it they ha they'll hate me because they don't like that I've said these things or whatever and I just I I'm gotten to the point now where I just want to say what I want to mm -hmm. say you know and yeah. if they don't like me that's fine you know they're allowed to to dislike what I have to say, but I, you know, I'm 70 years old now and, you know, I don't know how many more movies I'm going to make, so <laughs> I'll make these. And I, I, and the other thing is I actually like making movies. So, I mean, you know, I get to do it until somebody says, you can't do this anymore. <laughs> I mean, does it bug you when people say, oh, actors and directors, Hollywood people, you know, you just shut up. You can't have a political opinion. Well, I mean, what, what right do you have to voice your opinion? Well, I mean, politics? first of all, I everybody mean, has a right to voice yeah, their opinion, exactly. but I don't think that people in Hollywood should have any more right than anybody else. And unfortunately, I think they are paid attention to more because mm. they are famous. That's the reason we have Donald Trump as president. Yeah. And we have a whole culture now of people who uh, become famous and rich uh, based on nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have any talents or anything. I would say I'm slightly different from many celebrities in that I've actually held job in government. I mean, I, right. I worked for seven years to run a, a state commission in California that oversaw the implementation to early childhood sure. uh, work. And that was, you know, a program that, uh, you know, it generated 500 to 700 million dollars a year for young children. And I uh, oversaw the implementation of that. So I did work in government mm -hmm. for seven years and I have worked on public policy and I have been active in getting, you know, I was very involved in uh, in overturning Proposition 8, which right. led the way to marriage equality in America. We, the group that I helped form, the American Foundation for Equal Rights, was uh, the first group to file a federal lawsuit against, uh, you know, in favor of uh, marriage equality. Mm -hmm. So I have been involved in these things, and I wouldn't uh, talk about something I didn't know anything about. I mean, I think celebrities have certain value in that they can draw attention to a particular issue uh, just by mere fact that they're celebrities. But then I think that it's incumbent upon you, if you want to move the agenda forward in any way, you have to at least steep yourself yeah. in that in that policy and understand what it is you're talking about. So, you know, yeah. they can make fun of me. They can say whatever they want. But I actually have done a lot of homework on yeah. a lot of these things. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And you also flirted with running for office yourself yeah. back during the recall election. Now that Trump 
has sort of broken the seal on celebrities being taken seriously as candidates. Well, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. uh, was a governor of uh, California, and we've had uh, many celebrities that have been senators. And, mm -hmm. and you know, right. Ronald Reagan was a president of the United States. True. He was an actor. I mean, we've had uh, people right. that, you know, Donald Trump, I would say, is the first one who has absolutely no governing experience <laughs> or any yeah. interest in learning about the government or any yeah. experience in anything being the president and he happens to be famous but he's only famous yeah. because of a of a reality television show <laughs> he's not famous for anything else yeah he sort of set the standard to where now everyone from mark zuckerberg to kanye west are talking about running in 2020 do you think that maybe this uh this might be your moment no no i don't no? think of, i don't think of it that way i i i i actually want to get things done uh i try to get things done and I f try to figure out what's the best way to do it. Is it, mm -hmm. it, is it as an elected official or is okay. it working? Uh, you know, I worked very hard to uh, against Washington Mutual at the time. They owned, a, they owned a piece of land, the Amundsen Ranch, which is in the Santa Monica Mountains. And they wanted to build a city there. And I worked very hard to make that not happen and preserve that land for, uh, you know, to, to be undeveloped. So yeah. I work at things okay. and I want to get something done. I don't think about... Oh, I want to be the only reason to run for office is if you think you can effectuate change or do something in an easier way than what yeah. you're doing now. So it doesn't yeah. uh, the idea of being an elected official okay. doesn't hold any interest to me in that. Oh, OK. Way. OK. So can you make a Sherman-esque statement about 2020 or, or let me For let me, me ask you this. Yeah, yeah. Let me put it this way. Do the words president meathead make you angry because when or scared there was or? a moment where I did think about running for governor and yeah. uh, it was against uh, Arnold yeah. when he ran the second time. And there was that those articles, you know, are uh, yeah. the Terminator versus the meathead. They did yeah. all of those articles. <laughs> and I make the joke, which was. You know, I did actually seriously consider it at that time because mm -hmm. I had spent, like I say, seven years in California government, and um, I, I I took a, I went with my we sat with the family. I have three kids; they were young younger at the time, and we talked about it. And I I make the joke; it was true though. I only polled forty percent in my own family, so I figured <laughs> if I couldn't carry my family, then I, I probably shouldn't do it. Well, maybe that'll change one day. Well, again, Rob Reiner's film LBJ opens in theaters November 3rd. Rob Reiner, thanks for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Rob Reiner for joining me on the podcast. Mark your calendars for his latest film, LBJ, which comes out this November 3rd. And follow Rob Reiner on Twitter at at Rob Reiner. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at KickAssNews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.
Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.